Well, thank you so much, and it's certainly good to be here. Uh, why don't you go ahead and crack your Bibles open to the book of Acts, if you would. Acts, just the first chapter. I need to tell you that uh, some 30 years ago, I took the book of Acts in seminary from our teacher, Stan, Dr. Toussaint. I feel a little uncomfortable calling him Stan, but uh, <laughs> I did want to tell you about one. I, I know the times that we've been in this class, Dr. Toussaint has always begun with a, with a joke, so I thought I would tell one on him. Uh, 30 years ago when I was in his class, by the way, uh, if you are associated with the seminary, uh, just keep this one a secret, but my motto going through seminary was a paper poorly done is a paper done. <laughs> and that pretty much got me through. Well, as I recall, when I was taking acts from Dr. Toussaint, uh, he would grade all of his own papers, which was sort of amazing, which was very amazing to me. And I don't know how, did you always do that? No, I think you did it when I was taking you for acts, but, uh, and, and the paper was the paper that I turned in was absolutely deplorable and uh, he graded with a red pen. And so help me, it looked like he'd opened up a vein on the paper. There was so much red ink all over it. <laughs> and I had misspelled the word judgment. And so, uh, of course he caught it. And uh, his comment was, you know, I, I had said something like, uh, uh, Jesus said, la da 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 da, judgment, blah, blah, blah. And his comment was, well, Jesus may have said that, but he certainly didn't spell it that way. <laughs> 30 years ago, I still remember that. But also in the, in the passage we're going to look at uh, this morning in Acts 1, uh, I'm going to mention something else about Dr. Toussaint that I've never forgotten, something that he did for me uh, after, actually after I graduated. Well, it's true that Lindsay and I have two grandkids and they live overseas and so I understand that. And we don't get to see them as much as we'd like, but uh, they came, they were here in the States and uh, Jojo was about six years old, I believe. And we got to watch the kids for, um, we got to watch them for a few days. We actually took them on vacation with us and we gave my son Joey and his wife Christy a little break. And then we were supposed to meet up. As it, as it worked out, I was preaching in um, Orlando, Florida, and so was my son, but at a different church. And the grandkids were with us, and so we were supposed to meet at a restaurant afterwards. And, and so, <coughs> excuse me, so uh, uh, Jojo was riding in the car with me, and my wife was riding with the pastor's wife, and we were all taking different modes of transportation. So uh, we were driving along, and and again, we were going to meet up with my son. And so I said to my grandson, I said, Jojo, I said, just think about it. I said, what if when you grow up, I'm preaching in a certain location and your dad's preaching in a certain location and you're preaching in a certain location and we're all preaching at the same time, just in different places. So he 
let that percolate just a little bit. And then he said, oh no, Papa, that would never work. You'll be dead and gone by then. <laughs> he's, a, he's a little handful. Well, if you've got your Bibles open to the book of Acts, let's, let's jump in and just a word of background. Uh, technically, the book is known as the book of Acts, but uh, Acts of the Holy Spirit would be a better, far better translation in my opinion, or a far better title in my opinion, because the things God did through the apostles were in reality the acts of the Holy Spirit through those who were the Lord's. The book was written by Luke, the beloved physician, the same man who wrote the gospel, which bears his name. So Acts is volume two of a two-volume set, and you need to think about it whenever you think about Acts. Think about it that way. Uh, Acts is picking up where the gospel of Luke, bless you, thank you, thank you. That's what I'm talking about. Um, It's a two-volume set, and uh, um, Acts picks up where Luke left off. Both books were dedicated to the same man, and Luke speaks of him in the very first sentence. Let's look at it because we're going to work our way through the first several verses here. Uh, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. We don't know who Theophilus was. We do know that his name means dear to God or friend of God. He may have been an important Roman official or possibly Luke's patron who financed the writing of Luke and Acts. The book of Acts is the account of the works of the Holy Spirit in and through the church. The gospel of Luke records what Jesus began to do and teach in his human body, but the book of Acts tells us what Jesus continued to do and teach through his spiritual body, the church, Jesus being the head of the body. And Stonebriar Community Church, as well as churches all across the nation and all across the world, can learn much about life and ministry from this book. So it's good for you to be familiar with the book of Acts. And it's also very appropriate. Last week was Easter. It's hard to believe that, isn't it? And here it is uh, the week after Easter, where we celebrated the resurrection um, and here we come to verse 2, and it already makes mention of the ascension. So it's, uh, it's perfect timing. Uh, verse 2 says, Until the day when he was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So verse 2 makes mention of the Lord's ascension. Interesting, interestingly, just where Luke left off his first volume. But before his ascension, Jesus gave two commands to this uh, ragtag band of followers that he had, and uh, they were to be followed sequentially. So just glance ahead to verse 4, and it says first that they were to remain in Jerusalem, and then jump on up to verse 8. Then they were to go into all the world as witnesses. Verse 3, between the time of the Lord's death and his ascension, Jesus made appearances for 40 days. Verse 3 says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. 
Now, this is, this is going to be just chock full of great information, but I want you to know that this is the only reference to the length of time, 40 days, that Jesus spent on the earth after his resurrection. And it says he gave many convincing proofs of his resurrection. I want you to circle the word proofs. It's interesting because it's the only time that it appears in the New Testament. Uh, the big um, $5 word, the $5 seminary word is hapax legomena. It means it's the only time, it's the one appearance of this word in the New Testament. It looks at demonstrable evidence rather than evidence that's provided by witnesses. Uh, demonstrable evidence. John, the apostle, wrote about it this way. He says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. In other words, the resurrection was proven by touch, by sight, by hearing the resurrection. When I was pastoring in Georgia, uh, I was pastoring the First Baptist Church of Norcross. And uh, by the way, I was mentioned this earlier, Dr. Toussaint, after I graduated from seminary, uh, agreed to meet with me and we met one afternoon or it might have even been the evening, it's hard for me to recall. But I do remember I had several questions for him because I was going back to Georgia and I knew at the time I was going to be pastoring a Baptist church and as it ended up, I pastored Baptist churches, don't hold that against me, but I pastored Baptist churches uh, most of the time that we lived in Georgia. Um, and uh, most Baptist churches don't have elders. They have one elder and then they have uh, deacons. And so I was, you know, I'd been studying church leadership and the structure. And so I, I was a little confused and I, I talked to Dr. Toussaint about it. And he told me, he said, Joe, don't, don't upset the apple cart. Don't go in and let that be the first thing you do in a Baptist church. He said, raise the level of the deacons, raise the level, and then use them as elders. You don't even have to call them elders. Uh, just use them as elders. And, and I did. That's exactly what we did. And it served me well over the past many years since he gave me that advice. But I was so thankful that he took the time. And of course, those are things you never forget and caused me to love Dr. Toussaint, even to this day. But uh, I was pastoring the First Baptist Church in Norcross, which is a suburb of Atlanta. And we had a daycare uh, at our church. And uh, we, had a, we had a lady that ran it. Her name was Pam Edgar. Her husband's name was Bill. Great, strong couple in our church. Their children were about grown. They had a son named Philip who went to the University of Georgia. And uh, the University of Georgia was about an hour from where we were in Norcross, if you're familiar with your uh, geography there. But we, we got a call one morning, the chairman of the deacons called me and he said, Philip has been killed in an automobile accident. Um, while he was attending the University of Georgia, he had been out and was killed in a tragic accident. And he said, I'm gonna come by and we're gonna have to go over and we're gonna have to talk to Pam and tell her. So we got someone lined up to take Pam's place and he was at the church in just a few minutes and we walked over to the gymnasium where they had the, uh, the child care program and, uh, and we had to tell Pam. And uh, he, he, we, she, was, she just, 
the life just drained out of her and she was as weak as a lamb and we got her into the um, chairman of the deacon's car and he drove and I followed in my car and we drove out to their home and Bill, her husband, was already there. And Bill came to the door and they lived down a long winding driveway. They had a very nice home, very nice area up in Forsyth County. And uh, they dr- we drove down a long winding driveway and we got to their their house and we got Pam out of the car and walked her up to the front porch and up the steps to the front porch and Bill came to the door and she literally collapsed into his arms and I was just observing I was their pastor and they were boohooing as you might imagine and she was crying and I remember she kept saying the Lord loves him more than we do The Lord loves him more than we do. The Lord loves, she just kept saying it over and over. And of course, it's a true statement. It was probably a pretty good thing for her to be saying. And I have one son. So I was thinking about it. Of course, you can't help but put yourself into the other person's shoes. And she kept saying, the Lord loves him. And we went inside and we began to visit and pray and And you know something, I'm sure you folks know this, you've been around a while, you don't really have to say anything, you just need to be there. You don't need to say a word. And neighbors and people from the church began to come in and they were bringing food and a lot of prayer and then more talk and talk of memories. And we stayed for about two hours and then... uh, uh, we slipped out. The, the, there was another deacon there, and he and I slipped out, and he actually lived across the street. And there were plenty of people there, and well, we had already been there a while, so we didn't feel bad about leaving. But we left, and we went over to his house. So we went, came up the winding driveway, crossed over the road, and went down another winding driveway to this deacon's house. And he took me in a study, and he was showing me books, and <clears throat> oh, here's a great book, and have you read this? And I said, read it. Now, this is what you say, by the way. You get more than your money's worth this morning. This is what you say when you haven't read a book. But if you own it, you, you say, read it? I own it. So uh, at any rate, we, we, uh, you know, we were looking at his books and talking. And we'd been visiting a little while, and the phone rang. And he picked up the phone, and he said, really? Really? Oh, wow. Okay, great. We hung up. And he said, come on, we've got to go. We got in his car and we drove down the winding driveway and over the road and back toward Bill's house. And Philip, the son, his sister, who was a year or two older, she was out of college. She was already teaching school in South Atlanta. She came out on the porch. And I'm not kidding now. And I'm going to yell, so you might want to hold your ears because I'm going to yell. But she came out on the porch and she said, He's alive! He's alive! He's alive! And, and she just kept yelling it. And I'm just kind of, what? What is going on? Well, just to cut to the chase, it was a case of mistaken identity. The sad part of that is, someone did die. Another student did die. But we didn't know who it was. But somehow, either Philip had lent him his driver's license 
or he had taken the driver's license of Philip, it wasn't Philip. And Philip showed up at a class in the University of Georgia. And his, 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 uh, the word, some student saw him and said, hey man, uh, you better call home. <laughs> and so he did, and it was just a joyful time. And I, I, you know, I've used that story on Easter because that had to have been how the disciples felt when they got the word that Jesus was alive, that he was back from the dead. And he made appearances for 40 days, a solid month. And the Bible tells us, we just read it, that he discussed what? The kingdom. The kingdom. Prior to his death, the Jews expected their Messiah to usher in God's kingdom on the earth. And that they, it was the topic of much of his teaching prior to the cross. Indeed. Don't most of the, um, don't most of the parables begin, and the kingdom of God is like, and then Jesus explains what the kingdom was going to be like. The apostles had a strongly political view of the kingdom, and they longed to see the defeat of Rome and all of their enemies, not to mention their concern for their own positions and privileges. Part of the reason so many were so devastated at the crucifixion was that their hopes of the kingdom were now gone, were now dashed. I mean, their Messiah, look what's happened to him. And, and we can't believe that our Messiah would succumb to death by crucifixion, the worst of all possible deaths. No kingdom, extreme bewilderment. They, they were, they were, they were out there. They, they didn't know what to do. But now Jesus is alive from the dead. And he sees fit to discuss with the disciples the kingdom, commonly called the millennium. When God will, as Dr. Toussaint would say, burst into human history in a spectacular way to establish his rule on earth. Now, let me just ask since we've got a little bit of time here. Um, how long is the kingdom? Yes. Commonly known as the millennium. We know that a millennium is a thousand years. How do we know that it's a thousand years? Yes. Whoever said that moved to the front of the class. That was great. Revelation chapter 20. I'm not going to take the time to turn there. But uh, that's your homework. Go to Revelation chapter 20 and read the first several verses because six times in seven verses, it says a thousand years, a thousand, a thousand literal years on the earth. Now, I know that you people have been, ver excuse me, very much exposed to that because you've got, with Stan Toussaint, one of the finest teachers on the planet, and I'm not going to retract that. When we come to this class, uh, you know, we drive an hour to get here. 
We live in Forney. Well, my wife drove this morning. We made it in about 35 minutes, but, <laughs> but we, we live a long way away. But we, come, we, we pass a lot of churches to get here. And we've done it for, well, this is my second full year as, as the chaplain. But we've done it for some time now. We come and we hear Dr. Toussaint. Ten minutes into the class, I'm on overload. And, and then we go and, and hear Chuck preach. And, um, and I always wondered about that long gap in there. But uh, good to know that's going to be repaired. But uh, then we go, and I'm already on overload, and we have one of the finest preachers on the face of the planet. You just don't know how blessed you are. You just need to stop and thank God for the richness of what you're learning. It's just, just a blessing. And sometimes I'll say to my wife, do we need to keep doing this? And she said, yes. She says, uh, she says it is, it, it, it may just be for a season, but we're going to go while we can. We're not going to squander this opportunity, even if it means a long drive. The church that I most recently pastored in Georgia was previously pastored by a liberal. And I came on the scene and, uh, and, and the people, you know, they, they oh my good, they, they, they didn't know their Bibles. We were at that church for 12 years. And one of the things that we tried to do was encourage them to read their Bibles through once a year. Uh, every, every Christian needs to write, read your Bible through once a year. You know, they, when we left, they, they gave us a, um, a, a party, a, a reception, and uh, a lady came up to me and she said, you know, before you became the pastor here, I'd never read my Bible through. And um, she said, you've been here 12 years, and I just want you to know that uh, since you've been here, I've read my Bible through 14 times. And I thought, that, that, that statement alone almost makes my whole time there worth it. Uh, and, 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 you know, that's, that's what it's about. Amen. Told you I was a Baptist. Well, look at verse four with me and gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me. What had the father promised? Well, he promised the Holy Spirit. Luke 28, you don't need to turn there, but I do want you to jot it down. Verse 49, Luke 28, 49, says this, And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now that was Luke. He's picking up where he left off. And obviously we see it in verse 5. And John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan. And what did he say when he was baptizing in the Jordan? Well, if we go to Matthew chapter 3, and I'm going to tie this together in a minute, so just hang with me. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, this is John, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right? So um, 
let's talk about the word baptism for a minute. I'm going to tie it up in just a little bit. The word baptism literally means to dip or immerse or plunge. There's a first century recipe for pickles that says you take the cucumbers and you baptize them in vinegar. Uh, you, don't, you, don't, you don't make pickles out of cucumbers by sprinkling them. Amen. You've got to dip them or plunge them. But figuratively, the word means to identify. The word means to identify. Uh, there was a couple that I went to visit in our church. Not sure how I got their name, but um, I, I went to, um, to visit them in their home. And there was a man and his wife, and they had a 12-year-old girl. And I was able to sit and talk with them about the gospel. Uh, it, it was just a glorious visit and one that I still remember. And I explained to them that we're sinners, that we owe a penalty, that uh, the penalty for our sin is hell, eternal separation from God. And the only hope that we can have is to put our faith in Christ. Jesus died on the cross. He paid for all of our sins. He was our substitute. He took our place. He paid the sin debt, and if we will put our trust in him, then we can be certain we're going to heaven because he died, paid for our sins, and he was resurrected. So we have a living Savior. So we talked about it at length, and finally we came down to the end of the conversation, and uh, I said, uh, does this make sense? And they said, yes, it does. And I said, would you like to tell the, I said, would you like to put your trust in Christ? And all three of them said yes, even the 12-year-old. All three of them had been tracking with me. And uh, I said, all right, well, would you like to tell the Lord what you just told me, that you want to put your faith in Christ? And they said yes. I mean, it, you talk about low-hanging fruit. It was just, I, I, it doesn't always happen like this, and I don't have any other stories exactly like this, but I told them, I said, all right, we were sitting on, you know, chairs and, and a couch around their coffee table. And I said, let's just do this. Let's just kneel down here at this coffee table. And, and let's, let's just pray together. And I'll lead us in a prayer. And if it makes sense and if you mean it, you follow me. And, and I just let them a phrase at a time. And all three of them said, Lord, we want to put our faith in Christ. We realize we can't be good enough. We realize that that it's not of works, that we have to be perfect, and the only way we're going to make it in is by putting our faith in Jesus. And, and we trust you now. Oh, it was such a glorious time. And, and so we looked up, and, and uh, I looked up, and I said, did you mean it? They said, yes. And I said, well, that's just fantastic. And it was just a great time. It was a great time. Well, they, of course, were in church on that following Sunday. And in the Baptist church, we have them come forward at the end of the service and um, it, our motivation was just to help people who had needs. It's the way we did it. So they came forward and, and uh, they wanted to be baptized. And so the next week, uh, we bapti I baptized the three of them. I plunged them. I dipped them, the three of them together. If you've ever seen a, a double baptism or a triple baptism, it's, it's really something to behold. And so I baptized them. And it symbolized the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
Uh, I dipped them in the water. But they were also identifying with our church. When you are baptized by the Holy Spirit, and one of the main things the Holy Spirit does, and it happens when you trust him, is that he baptizes you into the body of Christ. He identifies you with the body of Christ. When I trusted Jesus as a 15-year-old, I didn't realize it, but when I trusted him, I became a member of the body of Christ. I was identified with the body of Christ. And, uh, and then I had to learn about uh, what it meant to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And the word filled means controlled because I needed that power from on, a high, from on high to live. And, and I'm glad to tell you that the Tylers, the family that I baptized, learned about that. And they're still involved in our church and they're, they're involved in singing in the choir and they're very active and godly people. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Spirit baptism is being identified with the universal church. And that's one of the things that the Father had promised. Water baptism is an outward sign of an inward experience. The inward experience is, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, write it down. It's the key verse on spirit baptism. It's an outward sign of that inward experience of being united to the body and bat water baptism is the outward sign of what's taken place on the inside where you are identified with a local body of believers. And by the way, this, this spirit baptism takes place in the very next chapter, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. Yes, that's right. Very, very good. That's very good. So here's what I want you to do. Look at Acts chapter 1, and right beside verse 4 in the margin of your Bible, write 10 days, because it says, and gathering them together, Jesus gathered them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. And we know looking back that they waited 10 days, right? Because he made appearances for 40 days, you add 10 to 40 and you get 50 and that's the meaning of the word Pentecost, 50 days. So write 10 days in the margin of your Bible. And also by verse 5, write Matthew 3, where it says, uh, you wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you heard from me. Matthew chapter 3, we read it just a moment ago. All right, so write Matthew chapter 3 by verse 5. And then by verse 5, also write, fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, chapter 2. So they asked Jesus in verse 6, Lord, is this it? Is this it? Is this the time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Why did they ask that? Well, Remember, Jesus had been talking to them about the kingdom. And when Jesus mentioned the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they immediately concluded the restoration of the kingdom because there are so many Old Testament passages that join the two together. Notice that in verse 7, Jesus said this. Now, this is really interesting if you're focusing in here. But in verse 7, he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. But something I want you to notice, 
He never corrected them regarding the coming of an earthly literal kingdom. He didn't say, ah, we're not interested in that. No, he didn't correct them. They were right to expect the kingdom. His answer, his response was, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. And then in verse 8, he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Key verse in the book of Acts right there, verse 8. What time is the class over again? Okay, okay, good. We're in good shape. All right, good. Um, But you notice the word but in verse 8. It signifies a contrast. The kingdom will eventually come. But in the meantime, The gospel must be preached throughout the whole world. So what Jesus is saying is, instead of knowing the times and the dates, you worry about being witnesses, supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things because the Spirit of God was at work in their lives. I came across something a while back I want to read you. Uh, This is from a devotional by Amy Carmichael. Anybody ever heard of Amy Carmichael? Just nod your head like this. Famous missionary. Uh, She she evidently wrote uh, a, a, a devotional called Edges of His Ways. And she says, this is a note from a note sent to me, illustrating very beautifully the story of one who, watching a potter, thought that he could make a pot on the wheel and tried but failed. So then she continues and she says this, or she continues the devotional. Then the potter said, sit down and you can make a pot. That I cannot do as you see by what I have already done. I replied, sit down. He insisted, I did so. Then sitting behind me, he put his arms over my arms, his hands over mine, his fingers over my fingers. The wheel began to spin. Do not allow your fingers to resist mine, he advised, and I obeyed. There under my fingers, to my astonishment, grew a beautiful vessel. The wheel stopped and my friend said, behold your pot. Not mine, I said. Look on your hands. There is clay on your fingers. So they touched the clay. For there's nothing on my hand. Whose hand touches the vessel, that hand makes the pot, the potter said and smiled. Now the God of peace make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. I read that and I thought, well, that's a pretty good illustration of, of being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And uh, then I went to bed one night thinking, that's a pretty good illustration, but it's still a bit nebulous. Let me tell you another illustration that hit home for me a little bit stronger. When we lived in the little town in South Georgia where I most recently pastored, uh, they had the, the busiest store in our little town was Walmart. I don't even know if they have greeters anymore, but you know what I'm talking about when I say you walk into a Walmart and, and, and they have a greeter there. 
Well, they had an old man who was the greeter there, and for some reason I was just attracted to him and liked him and always spoke to him. Uh, found out a little later that his name was Cullen Maxwell. Uh, Cullen and I became good friends. Uh, matter of fact, very good friends. And Cullen was a believer. The reason I first wanted to get to know him was to lead him to Christ, but I was a little disappointed he was already... <laughs> Just kidding. But he was a believer, and, uh, and, and we were talking one day. I know I kept him from his job, but we would stand around right in the front entrance way of Walmart, and we'd just talk about the Lord, and it was great. And uh, Cullen told me a story one day about his dad. He said his, he said his dad used to drink, and he said his, he was very abusive, he was abusive to my mother, he said, and to my brother and to me. He said he would beat my brother and he would beat me. He said, I've seen my dad hit my mother so hard that she crumpled like a stack of boxes to the ground. And I'm standing there thinking, oh, I, hate, I hate that kind of thing. I hate to hear that kind of thing. And then he said, you know what happened? He said, my dad went to church and there was an old preacher at a revival and something he said got through and the Holy Spirit used it to pierce my father's heart. And my father came to faith in Christ. And he said, he became almost overnight the, the best husband you could possibly be and a model father who loved my brother and me as never before. I am so shocked at what he's telling me. We're standing there in front of Walmart and I said, really? And what do you attribute that to? Now, I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church, and I'm saying, what do you attribute that to? He said, I think, he said, the way I've, he said, my assessment is that my father wanted to do right. He wanted to live right. He desired it, but he just didn't have the power to do it. He just couldn't do it, so he turned to drinking. And the alcohol controlled him in a way that was not positive, and he was abusive. But once he trusted Christ, and the Holy Spirit placed him into the body of Christ, and my father allowed the Holy Spirit to control him, then the Holy Spirit controlled him in a positive sense, just like the alcohol had controlled him in a negative way, just like scripture says. And I just thought, that's it. That helps me more than the Potter story. The Bible says here we're to be witnesses. A witness is a person who tells what he or she has seen and heard. And if you ever are on a witness stand in court, 
The judge isn't interested in your ideas or your opinions. He wants to know what you've seen. He wants to know what you've heard. Our English word for martyr comes from the Greek word translated witness. If you look at it, you can even see it in Greek. Uh, Many of God's people have sealed their witness by laying down their lives. I hardly need to make an application there. Several um, months back, my son and my daughter-in-law, who have served in South Asia for eight years, spoke in chapel at the seminary. I think he called that nepotism. (laughs) But at any rate, uh, they're traveling in. I'm already at the seminary. They're traveling in from our home in Forney into the seminary to speak, and they get a call from South Asia that one of their colleagues had just been stabbed to death. The country where they serve is 99% Muslim. And so here's my daughter-in-law, Christy, just crying and carrying on. And then she has to get to the seminary and get herself together in order to speak. A lot of God's people have sealed their witness by laying down their lives. This says that all of us are to be witnesses. All of us are to be witnesses. You know, you you may not be bringing another person to a place of faith and decision, but you can still bear a faithful witness. It's not up to you. You can't make a person. You can't twist their arm to receive Christ, but you can certainly encourage them. I say it's like handing out lightning rods in a thunderstorm. You don't know when the lightning is going to strike and you don't know who it's going to strike, but you do know it's going to strike. And so our job is to hand out these lightning rods. It it, it starts where we are. That's why he said, stay in Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem. Then it moves on to Judea, then Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You just need to be faithful. That's your job. You just don't know what's going to happen. Uh, when I first became the chaplain, we had to fly back to Georgia. I had to do a wedding. And, and uh, so we were at uh, DFW Airport, um, and we were getting our luggage weighed and getting our tickets processed. And, and uh, the girl who waited on us, I just didn't like her. From the moment I laid eyes on her, I didn't like her. You ever met anybody like that? You know, you you see them coming and your knees just sort of grind into reverse. Well, she, she was different, or at least in my mind, she was different. You know, she was, had this gothic look, black fingernail polish and all tatted up and and, uh, you know, some piercings and I just not my cup of tea. It's fine. It's fine. But, and she was rude to us on top of everything else. And as I recall, we had to unload one suitcase and shift some weight around because she wasn't about to let it go over 50 pounds. So I just sort of let Lindsay, I left Lindsay with her and I stuck my hands in my pockets and I started wandering off because I, I knew what was going to happen. And sure enough, they got all finished. I had seen Lindsay reaching in her, her uh, pocketbook, and she pulled out a tract. And uh, it was one of our son's tracts. It's 
put out by Vantel. We use these and the ones that y'all use in this class, the Vantel tracks. And she, and I, I was, I, I could hear it, but I was wandering away because I knew this is going to be a grease fire. <laughs> Lindsay said, as sweetly as possible, would you mind reading this for me when you get a chance? And she handed her the gospel tract. The girl burst into tears on the spot. And I felt like a heel. And the girl said, she took the track and she said, you, you don't know how much I've needed this. I've just had the worst day and my life is a wreck. And you don't know what other people are going through. And shame on me for not liking her to begin with. Or not even having wanting, wanting anything to do with her. You don't know. Your job is to hand out the lightning rods. You know, and it begins in Frisco, then it moves to the state of Texas, then North America, and then foreign countries. As Dr. Oswald J. Smith used to say, the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest at home. And then we come to verses 9 through 11. I'll read them and wrap up. we'll wrap up. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Describes the Lord's ascension, but it also anticipates his return. And it says he'll come back in a cloud, bodily, in view of people, to the Mount of Olives. I've been to the Mount of Olives. <laughs> I was supposed to give... By the way, if you haven't been, you need to make sure you sign up with Insight for Living and go. Yeah, the trip's coming up next March. Uh, the last time uh, they had an Insight for Living trip, we were there. and We were on the Mount of Olives. And the same way the apostles saw him go will be the way he comes back, personal, visible. The ascension marked the conclusion of Jesus' ministry on earth in his bodily presence. It also exalted him to the right hand of the Father. At the same time, the ascension meant that the continuing work of Christ on earth was now placed in the hands of the disciples, and we are to be witnesses. Jesus had to ascend in order to, that the promised comforter could come, so that the Holy Spirit would empower the disciples as they ministered the gospel and waited for the kingdom. You know, no matter what your view is of God's prophetic program, we can all agree on this. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming again. And uh, according to the way I view it, he could come at any time. And you need to let that grip you. I want to close with a story about being a uh, a lightning rod hander outer. My uh, that's good English. <laughs> my uh, my son told us a story uh, about when he was overseas. He went up into the hill tracks into this mountainous area, um, where he told his mama. She said, "Why why are you doing this? Why are you going up there?" He said, I want to be able to say I preached the, the gospel 
in the remotest parts of the earth. And he took every form of transportation imaginable, a car uh, or a, a, a jeep, and they would, what they would do is they would show the Jesus film and then they would preach the gospel when they would get to these remote areas. So they, he, they took a jeep, they took a boat, they took a motorcycle. At one point they had to ford a river and he had to hold the, the projector and the generator above his head so it wouldn't get wet. And they finally had to hike way up into these mountain tracks. They get permission from the, the tribal leader. And uh, if they get permission, then they, they, they show the gospel, the, the Jesus film, and then they preach the gospel. And he has a way of beginning his um, presentations. I mean, there's a zillion ways, but he'll say, what do you think to this group of people? And 35, 35 men had, had get banded together this evening. It was dark. And, and he, he started off by saying, what do you think the greatest problem in the world is? And people will say, well, you know, start lack of food or economics or whatever they say. And so he started off his presentation. What do you think the greatest problem in the world is? And one of the young men stood up of the 35, and he said, we want to know how to get to heaven. And our son, when he was telling us, said, I lost my breath and almost fell to my knees. He said, I couldn't believe it. And so... He preached the gospel, and all 35 of those young men put their trust in Jesus. This is, this is remote. Believe me, it's remote. Afterwards, he went to that one young man, and he pulled him aside, and he said, How did you know? How did you know to ask that question? Now, get this. The young man said, And the best Joey could understand, someone from a neighboring village came over to our village and preached the gospel. And what it amounted to was planting seeds. And then the Holy Spirit went to work. And all 35 came to faith in Christ. You just never know. Most of what you do when you're a witness is you're planting seeds. So you never know. But we have the power to do it, and it's extremely practical. Let's pray. Father, I've uh, so enjoyed this time with these folks, and I pray that you'd bless them. And we thank you that, uh, that Jesus died for us, that heaven is a gift. We just need to receive it by trusting in Jesus. Thank you that you came back from the dead, and then you sent your Holy Spirit to be with us and comfort us and live in us. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.